Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. Today's episode is about trauma and trauma treatment, specifically cognitive processing therapy. People have been asking me to talk about cognitive processing therapy because it was recently featured in a This American Life episode. Patron Jenna wrote to me saying that uh, she heard the episode and she's like, you know what? Cognitive processing therapy kind of reminds me of DBT. And it also reminded me of the fact that you often will talk about on the podcast about how a lot of different therapies overlap. Is that what's happening here? Is cognitive processing therapy overlapping with DBT and a lot of other th- and a lot of other therapies? And she says, as a clinician, I might not be using cognitive processing therapy or DBT or any other particular modality, but it's not to say that during therapy um, I don't do good work with my clients. And so I want to go into that today. But first, uh, let's just talk about trauma in general. Trauma is a big problem around the globe. I don't think any of you listeners out there would be surprised by that. Um, About 10% of people around the globe will suffer from PTSD at some point in their life. And PTSD is a pretty rough condition. It's not like, oh, I've been sort of traumatized. PTSD is debilitating. It's awful. And for one in 10 people around the globe to suffer from PTSD, not only are we looking at a situation where a lot of people are being traumatized, which is unfortunate, but also we're looking at a public health crisis where are there enough clinicians out there who know what they're doing who can actually help them? people with this? And the answer is no, absolutely not. The vast majority of people with PTSD never get treatment, either because there isn't a clinician in their area or uh, stigma or the clinician they are, uh, you know, sent to doesn't know how to treat PTSD or doesn't doesn't do it well. So so that's but that's just PTSD. You know, one in 10 people around the globe will suffer from PTSD at some point in their life. But that's just PTSD. There's a much higher percentage of people who will experience difficult events, trauma, and other kinds of situations that will lead to trauma reactions that are things like PTSD or other things that aren't necessarily in the DSM. If we're just going to stick to the DSM or uh, somewhat adjacent to it, with trauma, you can suffer, obviously, from PTSD, complex PTSD. It can be a major faction in addiction. It can be a major factor in emotional difficulties, relationship difficulties, personality disorders like borderline or narcissistic, dissociation, obviously, anxiety, panic, depression, low self-esteem. So when you add up all the different effects of trauma, it's a it's a huge issue. I, I don't, you know, I'm just going to say, I don't know a single person who hasn't been traumatized at least somewhat. I mean, I suffered from PTSD, uh, and uh, like I said, all of us have been through some version of trauma, but I had a medical procedure that was very traumatic for my psyche. Uh, My my prefrontal cortex was fine with the procedure, but there was something about it that triggered in me some sort of deep reaction, and and I, for years, had PTSD after that. Um, so, uh, and because I learned how to treat trauma over the years, I actually treated myself and cured myself of my own PTSD. Um, so anyway, many people are walking around with conditions uh, related to trauma that therapy could help with. And uh, trauma conditions, particularly PTSD, are 
pretty easy to cure, pretty easy to help with uh, proper treatment. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of things that people come to therapy for that are really hard to treat, like personality disorders can can take a long time. Uh, you know, finding the meaning of your life can take a can maybe never actually uh, th- therapy might not ever help with that. Um, ongoing grief sometimes therapy can have trouble with. But when it comes to PTSD, uh, we have ways of actually curing that condition. And when you know how to do it, it's it's pretty easy actually. It might take some time, but you know, it as long as you know what you're doing as a clinician, you can actually really help people. So. The problem is, though, in our in my field, and I've talked about this before, is that most clinicians are not trained well about trauma, and they're also not trained well enough to know that they're not trained well enough. So you have a lot of therapists walking around thinking that they can treat trauma when they actually can't, and that's a problem, right? You know, it's one thing to walk around with a bunch of clinicians who don't know, say, how to treat anorexia, for example. In my circle, if someone had an eating disorder, most therapists would understand that unless they really understand what they're doing, they probably should refer to a specialist in eating disorders. But when it comes to trauma, for whatever reason, and it's becoming less so as, as time goes on, thank God, but it's not as... Is you know it's it's taking too long in my opinion, but people are uh, uh, starting to realize, but not enough people are realizing that trauma is such a complicated issue, and PTSD is such a complicated treatment style that you have to really know what you're doing. Meaning you have to have taken courses, and you have to have a lot of experience, and you have to have supervision from <clears throat> from experts who know what they're doing. And so for the first 10 years of my, of my practice as a therapist, I didn't really know how to treat trauma, and I didn't know I didn't know because I was never really taught. Graduate school is, uh, you know, if, as a program, I used to be a program director of a graduate program and of the program I teach in. And one of the questions that I would sometimes get was, you know, how come there isn't, um, how come you're not training your people how to, treat trauma? How come you're not training your people how to treat grief? How come you're not training people on dissociation better? How come you're not uh, training people on uh, humanistic therapy better? You know, there was, there's various different questions that I would get. And my standard answer to them all was, if, you know, what I would say is, believe me, if, if I had it my way, I would, I would take my time and, and train all of these graduate sco- students to be good at, you know, 65% of what they need to know in order to be a, a good therapist. But guess how long that would take for them to get to get through school? It would take them like 10 years. And that one, like, that's too long. Two, uh, it would be really expensive. It would be on the order of like half a million dollars to pay for that from a student. So you'd, after you graduate, you'd have this loan of half a million dollars. Um, and... Uh, you know, so, so I would say that and I'd be like, um, and plus no one would want to come to our school because, you know, you have other programs out there that are advertising two years, you know, it's like, well, I can practice in two years or I can practice in 10 years. So that was my answer, you know, and it's, it's always a game of trying to figure out like, well, what do we prioritize? And although three years of education sounds like a long time, it's not. And, 
there's there's fundamental things, you know, ethical uh, codes and legal issues and just general theory knowledge and the ability to conceptualize, the ability to uh, talk to people. You know, these are f- fundamental things that we have to teach people in graduate school. And so now I think trauma therapy should be included uh, more often than it's not. And in, in, in some programs it is. But even if you're just taking one class on trauma therapy, that is not enough education, I'm here to tell you. Um, at this point, in a lot of graduate programs, including the one I'm teaching in, uh, you can graduate with a master's in marriage and family therapy or counseling and start practicing having only been exposed to one week of trauma education, meaning that in the psychopathology class, you you studied trauma-related disorders for one week and you maybe talked about treatment for, you know, 15 minutes. So, you know, that might shock you. But again, if I showed you everything else that we have to cover, you, you might understand. Um, so because I'm a product of that system, I really didn't know what I was doing with trauma in the first 10 years of, of my practice. You know, I, but I, and I didn't know what I didn't know. And I actually started treating people with trauma and I made some mistakes. When I look back at some of the clients that I treated who had PTSD, I, uh, I failed them. Uh, I, I either went too fast because I didn't know any better or, um, I didn't, I didn't go fast enough. You know, there's just, or I didn't know even really what PTSD was. I mean, I I knew the symptoms obviously, and you know, I'd heard it explained, but PTSD, dissociation, complex PTSD, uh, personality disorders, these are extremely complicated things. They're not intuitive is the thing. Depression and anxiety tend to be intuitive. Depression and anxiety, for the average person, it doesn't take them long to understand it. PTSD, not as intuitive. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, so uh, because PTSD has a lot of different presentations, PTSD is um, very complex. For some people, it is... Uh, quite simple, and uh, you know, I've 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 cured people's PTSDs in five in, in PTSD conditions in five sessions, five to ten sessions, and other people, five to ten sessions. That's a joke. Like uh, for me to treat their PTSD, it took me like five years. And uh, you know, how do you know the difference as a as a therapist between those two people? Because if you treat everyone like they're five sessions, you'll go way too fast, and the client will drop out. Or, and or be re-traumatized by your treatment model. So, so uh, PTSD is very, very complicated. And uh, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of misinformation out there as well. It, you know, one of the things that I talk with uh, supervisees and novice therapists about, you know, when I talk about trauma or when the topic comes up, Sometimes I'll hear this comment like, oh, it's okay. So the person has PTSD. Well, aren't we supposed to use EMDR? EMDR is one of the treatment modalities for trauma. And this drives me crazy because EMDR, yes, is evidence-based and it works for sure. But it'd be like if you said, oh, I'm hungry. Um, The only thing I can do to cure the hunger is to eat kimchi soup. Well, yeah, kimchi soup will help you with your hunger, but 
there's billions of other things you can do to cure your hunger. Uh, if you want kimchi soup, go for it. But, you know, what if you have to drive to another state to get kimchi soup? You know, what if you just have to drive down the, to the corner store and buy yourself a hoagie and that will and that will solve your hunger? So that's what it's like for some people in my industry when they start talking about EMDR. It's like they think of it as the only way to treat trauma or they think that Cognitive processing therapy is the only way to treat trauma, or they think that uh, DBT is the only way to treat borderline personality disorder. And yeah, these are ways, but they're not the only way. And certainly um, EMDR, we don't need to rely on that. I've never been attracted to EMDR because there are other easier ways to actually treat trauma, in my opinion. You know, EMDR involves eye movement desensitization or, you know, bilateral stimulation, which I find to be completely unnecessary, not only in terms of just the modality, but also like I'd have to take extra training. I would have to get equipment in my office and whatnot. And it's like, why would I add that on when I when I know how to cure PTSD in other ways? And so, so I'm not dogging on EMDR. I'm just dogging on the idea that EMDR is the only way. So anyway, that's my little thing about trauma. In this episode, I'm going to talk about trauma. I'm going to talk about PTSD. I'm going to talk about cognitive processing therapy. I'm going to talk about the This American Life episode that uh, goes into cognitive processing therapy. I'm going to talk about other trauma therapies, EMDR included, trauma-focused CBT, exposure therapy, others. And I'm also going to provide my model of treating trauma. I've talked about this before, but I've actually changed it. I'm always sort of changing it the way that I like to explain it to emphasize other aspects of it. And so I've actually added a step. <laughs> I actually did it recently. I was uh, lecturing in class to some students and suddenly it occurred to me, you know what, I think I should change step five to, from this to this. So I'll be talking about that. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, and I'm also a professor at Antioch University in Seattle. And this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're not a patron on Patreon, then this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron at patreon.com. When you, when you become a patron, you'll get instructions on how to access this episode in addition to hundreds of other premium patron-exclusive episodes, arguably our best episodes. I've done deep dives on attachment theory, um, deep dives on schema therapy most recently. So become a patron and you will get access to all those episodes. And it's also a great way that I just know you like this podcast because um, I'm always trying to uh, find out if anyone likes what I'm doing. <laughs> All right, welcome to the Patron Zone, people. First off, trigger warning to anyone who might be triggered by this content. I'm not going to go into super detail, but there is some talk about a woman who was sexually assaulted in public. So just be be warned on that. Um, all right, so first off, I just want to do a, a little talk on This American Life. Um, it's probably overall, if you just averaged out the past... 15 years. It's probably my favorite, my most favorite uh, podcast. Um, I started listening to it, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago on the radio. And when it became a podcast, I started listening to it all the time. 
And I just think it's great, especially back when it first came out. When it first came out, there was, to my knowledge, nothing else like it. Uh, you know, radio, talk radio was, was the way talk radio is. And then all of a sudden this hour comes on where Ira Glass comes on and talks about dreams or memory or uh, interviews people in inner city Chicago about what it's like to go to the prom. <laughs> and it was, it was so different and way more interesting. Anyway, This American Life, it's a radio show podcast that it's, it's usually three or four chapters over the span of an hour. And so each segment will be 10 or 15 minutes. But this episode of This American Life, the entire episode was about cognitive processing therapy. In the episode, a woman named Jamie Lowe, she travels to Seattle and records her sessions with a therapist who is using cognitive processing therapy with her. Um, so if you're interested in learning more about cognitive processing therapy, I would listen to that episode. And I give kudos to This American Life for highlighting cognitive processing therapy and PTSD. Um, I also, a big kudos to the therapist for allowing herself to be recorded in session. I'm not sure if I would have done that. Um, we, need a, we need a lot more of this, uh, particularly because, you know, uh, us therapists and therapy is depicted almost universally inaccurate uh, and or just horribly. I mean, just, you know, the, every time a therapist or a psychiatrist shows up on the movie screen or in a TV show, I'm always just like, oh, boy, you know, here we go. <laughs> Um, because writers just love to use this as a plot device. They really, they really, you know, it'd be like, <laughs> uh, imagine if you're a, you know, you work, you're a garbage man and you pick up garbage from, you know, people's houses. Imagine if every single time a garbage man was depicted in a movie or a TV show that they showed the garbage man throwing the garbage all over the road or, you know, trying to have sex with the housewife at the corner or running people over in the garbage truck, like the movie Men at Work with Amelia Estevez and um, Charlie Sheen. Um, just imagine that. Imagine if you were a garbage man, you'd just be like, really, Hollywood? It's all, we're always crazy. We're, we're always unethical. We're always criminals. We're always sex crazed weirdos. Like, you know, are we, are we always, you know, like, uh, yeah, sure. Some, but 99% of us are, we just do our job and, you know, 99% of us therapists, we just do our job and we're fine anyway. So, uh, <clears throat> Jamie Lowe of this American life, um, she was sexually assaulted when she was 13 years old. She was sexually assaulted by a random guy in the street who actually held her at knife point and assaulted her. Um, later, later in life, she, Jamie Lowe, she developed bipolar. It's hard to know if it's related, could be related to the trauma, uh, but much more likely that she was born with the disposition for bipolar. No one will ever know, but just a little detail there. So Jamie Lowe uh, developed bipolar as a as a teenager or young adult, and she experienced some really rough manic episodes, and it sounded like she got proper treatment, medication. She actually wrote a book about her life and her mental issues called Mental, and she said that the book was about her manic episodes, and I, I think they actually did another This American Life episode about her mania. 
anyway, so she seems she seems to have her bipolar um, under wraps. Uh, you know, she doesn't seem to be symptomatic with her medication, and yet she still had this sexual assault that she had never really addressed in therapy. And so she decided she wanted to she wanted to go to therapy. I'm unsure why they decided to do cognitive processing therapy. In some ways, it's like, well, why not EMDR? Because EMDR would be more exciting to uh, report on. But anyway, so she actually traveled to Seattle, and I'm trying to figure out why. I, I don't even know where the, where she was traveling from. From it sounded like California, but I'm not sure. It's like, why didn't she go to a cognitive processing therapist in her air in her area? I don't know. The only thing I can think of is that the producers of This American Life had a hard time finding someone who specialized in cognitive processing therapy. And because uh, it's not a it's not a super common thing for someone to be uh, specialized in it or even to use it in my circle anyway. Um, it's also uh, probably rare to find someone who specializes in it and has room open. It's also probably hard to find someone who specializes in it, has room open, and is willing to be recorded and broadcast on the internet. So, but they did, they found someone at the University of Washington, my alma mater clinic, Dr. Kaysen, and I commend her for volunteering. And she sounds like a fantastic therapist. So... People are asking me if I know Dr. Kaysen. Um, you know, it's like, oh, there's another therapist in Seattle. Shirley Kirk knows uh, this doctor. And the answer is no. There's a lot of therapists in Seattle. We're a pretty big city, and there's a lot of people. Although I did, it just as an experiment, I, I was like, well, how, what, what percentage of therapists do I know in Seattle? Like of all the therapists in Seattle, you know, because I know a lot, at least by name or face, I know a lot of therapists because just mainly because I'm a professor and I've been teaching for 20 something years and my program is um is the biggest by far program in in the region in terms of uh training people and so I went on psychology today and I started flipping through all the pages and uh, on average about every page I I recognize at least one person so and I, there was about 20 people per page so it, it looks like just on that very unscientific uh, method it looks like I might know about 5% of every therapist in Seattle, which is saying something, considering that the Seattle probably has like 10,000 therapists or something. So how many therapists is that, 500? Um, which, you know, makes sense, right? Uh, okay. All right, so let's go into what they present in This American Life. So in the first session, Jamie Lowe is in therapy with Dr. Kaysen, and Dr. Kaysen says, okay, in this first session... And by the way, the, the full treatment protocol is 10 sessions. So in the first session, Dr. Kaysen says, um, I'm going to be talking a lot in this, episode, in, this, in this session because there's a lot of education that you need to get before we go into the actual therapy model. And again, she sounds like she really knows what she's doing. It sounds like she's, she's done it a lot. She sounded a little clunky at times in my – just in my uh, preference. I, I like – my therapist to be a little more authentic in a way. But anyway, she sounded great. But uh, the doctor talks about what PTSD is, talks about what symptoms are, talks about the treatment model. And then they go into the first assignment. There's a lot of homework, apparently, in this model. There's homework every single session. Every session you review last week's homework and you give new homework. 
And the first assignment that they gave, that the doctor gave Jamie Lowe, was to write about why she think the sexual assault occurred. You know, what were the factors that led to her being sexually assaulted? You know, what caused the event? And you know, possible answers are things like, well, the person was a psychopath or I was walking down the wrong street or I was dressed too, too provocatively or, um, or misogyny in our rape culture society or something. You know, lots of different factors that a victim, a survivor could identify as being related to their particular assault. And Jamie Lowe, she starts to cry. And she's because in her in her mind, she knows that she's not to blame. She's like, well, I'm smart enough to know that victim blaming is a thing and I'm not going to fall prey to that. I know that I'm not to blame for what happened. But then when she really starts to think about the question, like, well, why did it happen then? She starts to actually cry because she's still basically in her gut believes that it is her fault. Uh, if she hadn't dressed the way that she had, if she hadn't been, if she hadn't smiled, you know, because she was a 13-year-old girl and she would walk to school or something, and she was very friendly, and she would smile to people and wave to people, and one of the people that she did that with uh, targeted her and assaulted her. And so she had always thought in her gut that, you know, she shouldn't be as nice to people as as she was, and she shouldn't have worn, she she wore boxer briefs as or boxer underwear for uh, shorts. And she was like, I shouldn't have worn uh, such, I shouldn't have worn clothing that was such easy access, she said. And and as she's talking about it, she's like, well, of course I know that I'm not to blame, but I, I, can't, I can't shake the feeling that uh, I am to blame. And so, so that's her first assignment is to go home and write about that and, and just to, to think through that. The therapist, uh, Dr. Kaysen, asks Jamie Lowe, uh, so do you have any worries at the end of the first session? You know, she's like, so before we go into the next nine sessions, do you have any worries? And Jamie Lowe says, no, I don't got any worries. Everything's good. But then she leaves the session and she's talking in the microphone and she says, of course I'm worried. And this is the first problem that I think there's a lot of if you don't know what trauma therapy is and you don't know what trauma is even if you're a clinician then i there's a lot of things that i'll get to later in terms of my critique of this whole thing but one of the things that is misunderstood by a lot of therapists is that if you just lay out the model and walk through the model everything should be fine but a lot of people, their PTSD is so distressing to them that the prospect of actually going into treating it is so triggering to them that they are so uncomfortable and so re-traumatized by even the idea of having to delve into that, that they never come back. So in this first session, she says, are you, are you, and yeah, are you worried at all? And Jamie's like, nope, I'm fine but she really is not fine. Well, I speculate that if Jamie's PTSD was more severe, uh, not to say that her the sexual assault she didn't go through was severe. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is every individual reaction is different. So just to be clear, dive on this a little bit. 10 people can go through the exact same trauma and have 10 different degrees of PTSD. 
uh, half the people won't develop PTSD. And of the people who do, they will have a different level of distress and symptom uh, degree that, uh, from each other. So, uh, and that's not because some people are strong or some people are weak. It, it's a lot of different factors that play into it that I don't have time to go into. But, uh, but anyway, besides, so I'm not talking about the trauma that she went through. What I'm talking about is the level of your symptoms. And uh, for Jamie Lowe, if Jamie Lowe had a higher level of symptoms, I'm guess, and she wasn't, you know, assigned to do this for a podcast, I'm guessing that she would seriously consider just saying, no, I'm fine. And then just never coming back for, for session two. Uh, and they didn't talk about that enough in this podcast. And when you learn these kinds of manualized models of trauma therapy, they often will talk about, okay, this, you know, this is what you do session five and you should be done by session 10. And that ignores the reality that a lot of people, given their issues, it, they can't get past session one and let alone like just forge ahead to session 10, you know, and that's my experience with some people. With some people, they absolutely can. Like I said, I've treated and cured PTSD in five sessions. I've also treated and cured PTSD in five years, and it was necessary to go that long. Uh, sometimes even longer, to be to be honest. Anyway, so this American Life, they start going into the middle sessions, you know, sessions two through nine. And the therapist and client, they seem to have a good alliance and a good relationship. They're they're keeping track of her symptoms as the treatment pro- treatment progresses. Again, they're going over worksheets. There, there's a lot of homework, a lot of worksheets. And the main uh, skill that is in cognitive processing therapy is this idea of stuck points. So in a nutshell, what CBT therapy does is you uh, have people do these worksheets where they, um, at, they, they explore their own, the, the meanings that they pulled away after the trauma. Like, um, how do I explain this without going into too much detail? So, well, let's just go back to what J.B. Lowe said earlier. She said that even though in her mind she knew that she was not to blame, in her heart she did blame herself. So this would be a stuck point. This is something that kind of prevents the psyche from healing itself. This this notion, which is natural to, to do because everyone does it, but it's not it's not rational and, it, and or it's not helpful for Jamie Lowe to believe that uh, wearing boxer shorts resulted, it was a factor in her being abused, that being nice to people was a factor in her being abused. Because what ends up happening is that people, and Jamie Lowe was an example of this, they will generalize that lesson learned to their entire life. So, and Jamie Lowe didn't go into this that much, but Uh, She seemed to intimate this, that because she learned these lessons of don't be nice to people, don't trust people, don't dress provocatively, um, when bad things happen to you, it's basically your fault that they happen to you. You have to be very hypervigilant about protecting yourself. The world is unsafe. All these kinds of uh, beliefs that one um, forms after the trauma. 
and that these are stuck points. And so the CBT therapy with these worksheets and, and in the sessions, the therapist uh, tries to change those beliefs that were built and developed after the traumas. So the Dr. Kaysen will say something like, well, so it sounds to me like you still like, like one of the things that, that you walked away from the trauma was that you're to blame. And let's talk about that. And uh, let's try to, let's try to change that. Let's, let's dismantle that. Um, and, and the therapist, Dr. Kaysen will, I don't remember exactly what she said, but you know, she would say things like, so instead of just saying, you're not to blame. It's like, well, we got to, we got to systematically go through, like, why do you believe you're to blame and systematically dismantle all the thoughts. Now for a lot of people, they've never verbalized these thoughts before. They're just sort of like, and this is what I find to be a, a true of a lot of people is that the things that people are suffering from, they're just, they're, they're unverbalized globs of goo that have some words to them, but not not a lot. And once you actually put them into words and you speak them out loud, particularly in front of another person, a lot of times that's enough to dismantle it because the person hears themselves saying something. You know, like for Jamie, she might be like, yeah, I mean, I guess even though I've never really talked about it, I kind of feel like it was my fault for dressing the way I dress. And then as soon as Jamie says that, she might be like, but that's ridiculous that I'm victim shaming. I'm victim blaming myself. How is, how is my, the way I dressed have anything to do with me being assaulted? I, I was assaulted because someone targeted me and the therapist helps her to change those conclusions because to, to something more quote unquote rational and something more helpful. Like I was targeted randomly. Most people would never do this to me, but some people might. Uh, it had nothing to do with how I was dressed. The, he probably would have assaulted me regardless of how I was dressed. It probably had nothing to do with the fact that I was smiling and waving at everybody. Uh, because again, if I didn't smile at him, he probably would have targeted me anyway. So it's this weird balance between the world is random and it has nothing to do with what you did. And also that you kind of have power. So that was another stuck point of Jamie's was like, well, then I guess I don't have, you know, one of the notions I walked away from after the trauma was I don't have any power in the world. I am powerless and therefore I should just not really leave the house and I should just stay home. And that is a uh, quote-unquote irrational belief. Again, with the cognitive behavioral folks, they will label things as irrational and rational. Uh, there's a bit of a problem with that because that implies that the clinician knows what's rational and what is not rational, which can be debated. But I prefer the term helpful as in terms of uh, differently from irrational. I'll still use the word irrational sometimes because some things are just absolutely irrational. But anyway... Um, so the therapist will help the, well, you know, so the therapist would help Jamie to not only learn and change her belief. So to learn that her, she has an irrational belief that the world is unsafe and to challenge that belief and start to dismantle it, start to change it. And then to actually do things to show to her 
that the world isn't as unsafe as she thinks it is, and she is more powerful than she thinks she is. So the therapist actually highly recommends that she um, go, she leave her Airbnb and actually like go out on the town. Um, and she talks about going out in Ballard and Fremont, which is pretty close to where I live. And, uh, and she does that and she learns that she can, um, you know, function in the world and the world isn't, isn't terribly unsafe. Another thing that she landed on, which I thought was kind of particular to Jamie, maybe is that, Jamie eventually realized that one of her stuck points was accepting compliments and giving compliments that it was, you know, they, they went over pretty fast, but it sounded like after the trauma and maybe through other issues in her life, Jamie had stopped caring about, she, she wanted to protect herself. And one thing she did is she put up a wall and didn't really uh, try to act like she didn't care about getting praise or compliments but secretly really wanted praise and compliments. And so one of the assignments was to actually give, give compliments to other people and receive compliments from other people. And this was a, in an interesting turn was a pretty major point in the cognitive processing therapy that you wouldn't think would be directly related to PTSD, but it absolutely can be. And so through those middle sessions, that's what the Dr. Kaysen walked through with, with, with Jamie and uh, Jamie found it very helpful. And at the end, session 10, Jamie writes about her new story about what happened, uh, the event. So she, you know, she wrote uh, the narrative in the beginning and she writes the narrative at the end. And Jamie talks about how it, it didn't make her cry anymore. And this was a big deal to her. She's like, I can now write about my story about being sexually assaulted and it's no longer distressing and I, I no longer cry. And the, the version of the story I tell now is more rational. Instead of me saying things like, um, it's because I was dressed a certain way, I say things like, this person is troubled and they, they randomly just found someone uh, that they could get. And, you know, that, I don't know exactly what she said, but it was something like that. And not only did this uh, reduce her PTSD symptoms, but it also gave her a more healthy way of looking at herself and at the world. So again, kudos to This American Life for highlighting this and to Jamie Lowe and to Dr. Kaysen for um, exposing themselves in this way. Okay, so things to consider here. There's a lot to consider when listening to this episode, to put it into context, because in the episode, it, they make it seem like this form of therapy is maybe the only way to treat trauma, which isn't true. And also, it makes it look like cognitive processing therapy is this miracle cure that will cure you know, PTSD in 10 sessions. And it's not that easy. So let's, let's, let's consider some things here. The first thing is that I don't know, but Jamie Lowe, either, she seemed to have either a very low-grade PTSD or she actually didn't have PTSD at all. It's clear she was traumatized, and it's clear that she needed treatment for it, and she benefited from cognitive processing therapy. But that doesn't mean that she actually crossed the threshold into actually having post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, so they, they, they didn't go into it enough, and I wish they would have. And I think that that's actually, maybe they, they either did that on purpose because if they actually said, look, Jamie actually doesn't really have PTSD. 
then that kind of negates the whole point of the episode. Uh, the way she, the way Jamie talks about her trauma, even in the very first session, to me, sounded like someone who was grieving the trauma. Sounds like someone who had some emotional difficulties from the trauma, which is natural. Sounds, it sounded like someone who hadn't really talked about the trauma uh, in any um, uh, sort of therapeutic way. But it didn't sound like someone who had PTSD. When I have people with PTSD, in the first session or in the session that we bring up their PTSD, they have so much distress that it's really hard for them to talk about it. Now, I'll say this. It's very possible that she had PTSD and she did cross the threshold. Let's just say that that's true. If that's true, she had a very low-grade PTSD. Uh, and I'm not sure about that, but it, it just seemed that way to me. And therefore, it's going to lend itself to uh, a shorter protocol of 10 sessions. Like I said before, I've had people with extremely low-grade PTSD, but PTSD, legit PTSD, and I treated them in five sessions. And... I didn't know necessarily at the beginning of that treatment, but by the fifth session, I was like, oh, we must have been dealing with something that um, was either very low grade or just simple enough to be able to be treated very quickly. The other thing is that uh, it's clear from what they were talking about that her PTSD was the result of one incident. She was sexually assaulted once at the age of 13. And although that's a young person, it's not as young as when you're four. It's also just one incident. Some people are traumatized from the age of, say, three until they're 13. They're sexually abused that entire time. And to claim that 10 sessions is going to eliminate all results and conditions and syndromes related to that trauma is ridiculous, right? If you've been sexually abused and traumatized over a number of years or from your, you know, the other thing was that Jamie Lowe was assaulted by someone on the street. Imagine if it was her relative or her own father or her mother. This would complicate things, right? And that's when we start to talk about conditions that result of that called complex BTSD or personality disorders. So anyway, uh, that needs to be um, uh, considered, is that her PTSD was probably very uh, simple and and low. Not to say that it wasn't significant, but it just was a particular type of therapy that lends itself to fewer sessions. The other thing is, is as she went through the therapy, she didn't report uh, about having any spikes in distress. Uh, again, when I treat people with PTSD, the average person that I've treated with PTSD will have massive spikes of distress during the treatment. Just talking about the treatment will cause massive spikes in distress, meaning that they will have, you know, they'll go from, you know, three to 10 in three seconds and they don't recover for weeks. They're exhausted. We also didn't hear any dissociation, which can absolutely complicate things. When people dissociate, uh, that will definitely slow down the treatment. Uh, so it, so that's one consideration. The second consideration is that Jamie Lowe, the client, seemed to have had a lot of what we call ego strength in the dynamic world. She had a lot of emotional intelligence, a lot of resilience. She had no noticeable transference to the, to the therapist. And she was dedicated to doing her homework. 
Dr. Kaysen even mentions this, that a lot of our patients will be doing the homework in the lobby just before the session. And that's not a way to do homework. And this is my experience with all of my supervisees. I stopped assigning homework years ago, maybe like in the first year I was a therapist, because 99% of clients do not do their homework. Uh, it, it sounds like a nice idea, but, you know, uh, it, it, that's just the way that it is. Most people just don't do their homework. So Jamie did it diligently. She, uh, atta- she attacked it. She felt she had the resilience. She had the support system or, or the emotional intelligence or the ego strength or whatever. And she did it. And uh, now... Maybe she did it because she has emotional intelligence and resilience. Maybe she did it because she is trying to produce a story so she can get paid with for this American life. That's a whole other thing to consider. It's like if Jamie Lowe did all this work and it didn't work, then this American life doesn't really have a story. So how does that factor into it? I'm not a conspiracy theorist in that way, but, you know, it's just something to think about. But anyway, at the very least, her being on assignment and needing to produce something meant that she was – basically being paid to do this therapy and basically being paid to do the homework. And, and so that's another thing to consider. Uh, a highly motivated, um, highly supported client going through the therapy. Also, the third thing to consider is it appears that her previous work in therapy made it possible for her to do this work. She wrote a book about her life. If And she, I believe she talks about how she did talk about her trauma a little bit in her book. For someone to go through all that therapy and to emerge on the other side where they can write a book about their bipolar, you've got to do a lot of soul searching. You've got to do a lot of thinking. You've got to go through a lot of therapy. And so I'm just guessing that it wasn't her first rodeo when it came to therapy. So that's another thing to consider. What? So so let's consider Jamie. Uh, in contrast to what I would consider to be the average client who shows up to therapy. Uh, the the client will have never been to therapy before, before or very briefly. They will be suffering in a lot of different ways. They'll, they'll suffer from addiction or from relationship problems. They lack support system. Uh, they have, might have money problems. I don't know. They're having a lot of symptoms, and they... Uh, have they were their traumas involved multiple incidents over a, a long period of time with people that they knew so there's at least some level of complication to their PTSD uh, when they come into therapy and I present them with trauma therapy they will tell me on average they'll they'll be like well uh, you know that's going to take me some time to uh, feel like I have the space to do that. Because one of the things I tell people is this trauma treatment could make your life really hard to manage in between the sessions. Like as you're getting better, it's going to be hard to concentrate at work. It's going to be hard to be nice to your spouse. It's going to be hard to parent your kids. It's going to be hard to sleep at night. And you've got to uh, sort of uh, prepare your life for for that because if we run into those barriers and you didn't expect them, then you might pull out of therapy or you might slow down therapy significantly. So you need to to know that. The other thing here, the other consideration here is that uh, going back to the ego strength part of it a little bit is that when Doctor Kaysen asks Jamie, um, "How are you feeling?" 
Jamie can tell her how she's feeling. And I know that might sound like, well, can't everyone do that? And the answer is no, everyone cannot do that, especially people who have PTSD, especially people who have been traumatized throughout their childhoods. You know, imagine if you had a father that was emotionally explosive and raging and terrifying to you from the day you were born. And this was traumatic to you. And as a result, you learned to never pay attention to your own emotions. And then you come to therapy and you're like, uh, I think I might have some kind of problem here. The therapist says, I think you have PTSD. And then the therapist says, okay, well, let's, let's start going into the therapy. And then the therapist says, okay, um, how do you feel about that? Well, for some people, they don't know how they feel about it because they have basically a six-month-year-old understanding of their own emotions, and it's no joke. I, I've treated people like this. That's what, that's what mistreatment and trauma will do to you. And in order for me to proceed, I have to know how they're doing. So on the inside, they could be at a 10, they could be at a level 10 out of 10 of distress, but they won't know it and they won't tell me. So we're proceeding forward as if everything's okay, but they're not okay. And they'll have a lot of symptoms as a result. And so, again, when you listen to This American Life, it sounds like, oh, 10 sessions. What a wonderful model. And it's like, uh, <laughs> I have clients who I worked with for years before they could even tell me kind of how they felt. So just think about that, that one of the early stages of trauma treatment is just the client understanding how they feel so that they can actually tell you how they feel so you can actually help them with how they feel. If they don't even know how they feel, then you got to start there. And that doesn't happen in one session, believe me. Now, do I think cognitive processing therapy works? Absolutely. I do this sort of therapy, basically, just not in the same manner. Um, but it needs to be way more flexible than that. Now, the reason why, well, I'll get into that later. Anyway, okay. So let's talk about PTSD um, specifically. Basically, this is developed when some people are exposed to a terrifying event. Now, some people get tripped up on the word trauma because, you know, on a very basic level, some people think trauma means like some physical trauma, like being in a car accident and having your leg broken or something. And then some people will think above that and say like, oh, well, you know, someone threatened to kill you or something. Well, and in the DSM, which I don't like uh, the way they word this, they say exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury or sexual violence. So let's kind of break this down. So exposure to actual threatened death, like someone actually threatened to kill you, um, you know, or actual death, someone actually dies in front of you or you almost died, uh, actual serious injury to yourself or other people or actual sexual violence or threatened. So someone threatens to kill you, someone threatens to injure you, someone threatens to sexually harm you. So to me, this is way too limiting, uh, particularly if you don't expand it in some other way, which I do. Now, for me, to just take me for example, I had PTSD. Um, and it was from a medical procedure. Now, that was not, it was a minor medical procedure. <laughs> and it completely traumatized me. There was something about it that got underneath my skin and 
made me feel as though I was, uh, at least my body reacted like something really bad was happening, even though in my cognitive mind, my conscious mind, I was like, everything's fine. <laughs> um, you're in good hands, that kind of thing. So I don't know if a lot of people would look at a medical procedure as an ex- as fitting the criteria of exposure to actual or threatened death or serious injury. Now, if you stretch the you know a little bit, you could say it was you know the threat of serious injury. But would someone call surgery the threat of serious injury? So the way that I like to define it, which is much easier to understand, is that it just needs to induce terror. So when because the other thing here is that. A lot of people are exposed to death, serious injury, and sexual violence, and they don't develop PTSD, right? So the key here is that you have to be terrorized by the moment. But the thing is, is the DSM steers away from such words because terror requires you to actually ask the person how they feel. And the DSM tries to steer away from that because it, it, it tries to be as behaviorally, observationally based, which is fine for what the DSM is, is its purpose. But the fact that we use the DSM as a guide for understanding mental condi- conditions is a little silly. The DSM is a great tool, and it's used in a certain way, but uh, we need to expand our understanding beyond, way beyond the DSM, way, way beyond the DSM. Um, so, and one of the ways we need to do that is to understand that uh, PTSD, the condition, is uh, it, it, it starts with the induction of terror. When you feel terror, you are, you know, and terror like uh, something really bad is happening and, and it's physical. It's not like intellectual, like, oh, this is scary. It's your body. Like, think about when people go into a haunted house at Halloween and you're walking through the maze and then all of a sudden this zombie jumps out at you. Cognitively speaking, you're like, well, that's an actor. But your body is terrorized. Your body jumps out of it. You might scream uncontrollably. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. It's terror. It's physical. It's beyond your brain's ability to, you know, think about, you know, the lizards that we came from being being afraid of something and running or, you know, fight, 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 flight, freeze, appease. And I heard another one the other day that was kind of... That was kind of interesting. Um, uh, fight, fight, P, P, anyway, I can't remember. Um, so, it, for example, I know people who have PTSD from having a, from having a bad trip on LSD. <clears throat> you can have a bad trip on psychedelics that can result in having PTSD. But it, does the definition in the DSM really really um, you know encompass that? I, I don't think so. So. Terror, just think terror. Anyway, now the symptoms that show up later. So this is the you know post traumatic. So it's after the trauma, um, well after the trauma, people have these ongoing symptoms that include things like intrusive symptoms like distressing memories or nightmares. Uh, also, avoiding situations that trigger the memories, like avoiding certain places or even relationships altogether. Avoiding emotions like avoiding fear or sadness because the emotions can be overwhelming or they can trigger the trauma distress. The person might change the way that they think. They might think they are powerless or that they're worthy of being abused. It might change their mood 
for some people, they're frequently in an irritable mood or they're in a depressed mood. And this is mainly due to the ongoing constant level of distress. You know, when you're uh, when you're uh, under a lot of stress, you're in a worse mood, right? Well, imagine you have PTSD and you're always in, a, in stress. You're going to be in a bad mood and you're going to be irritable. Hypervigilance. Uh, this is another word for saying that you're just constantly uh, on the lookout for danger, which is a heightened sense. You know, like imagine you're walking down a dark alley in the city and you're alone. And you're looking in every shadow and you're, you, you're hyper aware of every single sound and you hear footsteps. You turn around. Was that, is that someone chasing me? Okay. That's hypervigilance. And that's rational because you're in an alleyway, depending on where you are, I guess. Well, imagine being in that state all the time. That's what it's like for many people in PTSD. Um, they're like that in the movie theater. They're like that at school. They're like that in their car. They're like that at home in their bed. Hypervigilance. Sleep problems, eating problems. Some people can become aggressive or mean to other people. This is basically an itchy trigger finger on protecting the self. And also people can become easily triggered to having really high levels of distress. So that's PTSD. Again, the lifetime prevalence in the world, 10%, U.S., about 9%. A way of thinking about this in terms of the brain is that we have two, two main systems in the brain. Uh, we have many systems, but two of the main systems are the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex. The limbic system is the emotional system, and this includes fear, the amygdala, fight or flight, uh, adrenaline, this kind of thing. This is a system that we've had going way back in our evolution, um, back probably before we even emerged from the oceans. And then we also have the prefrontal cortex which is uh, particularly robust in humans. And it's basically our ability to think straight and our ability to regulate our emotions, such as fear. Like my cat, for example, does not have a prefrontal cortex that is as robust as mine. And so when my cat um, experiences my other cat, by the way, so I got a foster cat and they hate each other. And um, my old cat, my original cat, is very territorial apparently and, and is trying to kill her. And they're both very triggered by each other. Um, if my, if my, if Michelle, my, you know, original cat had more of a prefrontal cortex, she would be able to say, well, you know, there's enough room for both of us. She's not eating my food. She's not going to bat. She's not going poop in my litter box. Um, she's always in another part of the house. You know, it's probably, too much to like get myself worked up over this. I think I'll be okay. My cat does not have a robust prefrontal cortex. And therefore, whenever she sees the other cat, she flips out. For us humans, we can uh, talk to ourselves and help to modulate and mitigate our limbic system reactivity. We're getting on an airplane and we're thinking, holy shit, I'm about to fly through space at, you know, five miles up at 300 miles an hour, 600 miles an hour, uh, that's insane. That's what your limbic system is saying. No, 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 no. I'm not getting in that tiny pillbox and you know hurling through space in a, in a metal uh, ship. That's ridiculous. But your prefrontal cortex says, um, research shows that this is the safest way to travel and 
many people do it every day and all these other people seem to be getting on and everything's going to be fine. And then you get on the plane. Well, in normal life, there's this balance between those two between those two systems. For my family therapy folks, you can think of it as the differentiation concept of the balance between your reasoning ability and your thinking ability. Anyway, so there's balance between those two systems. Um, in some situations, you're like, I'm in an alleyway and I'm terrified. I'm glad I'm terrified because this is actually something I should be terrified of. And this is get, this is keeping me on high alert. I'm not just going to walk through this dark alley willy-nilly. I'm going to make sure that I'm really safe. So your limbic system is helping you in that moment. But there are other moments when your limbic system is not helping you. Um, so there's balance between those two systems, normally speaking. Uh, and there's only particular moments where your limbic system takes over when you're when you actually need it to, like a saber-toothed tiger is jumping out and trying to kill you. However, after you've had a significant terrorizing event, and if you have the disposition or the circumstances or it's repetitive enough or whatever, for you to have sort of an overload, if you, if you will, on your limbic system, and it involves memories too, limbic system has a lot of memory in it. And afterwards... For whatever reason, maybe we evolved to be this way. Our limbic system is given priority all the time. And our prefrontal cortex cannot balance it out. It can't push back. Uh, one way of looking at it is that the limbic system is trying to resolve the, the incident so that it can sort of relax. At least that's the way I see it. Because a lot of trauma treatment involves going back over what happened and experiencing those experiences again and sort of sifting through it. You know, Freud, Freudians called it working through. And there's something about kind of going back over that stuff that helps it to uh, have less intensity. You know, catharsis is what, and cathexis, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so that's another way of looking in terms of, you know, brain talk. Um. There are other things that happen to people as a result of PTSD. You know, over time, um, they have ongoing stress. Uh, let's see. I guess I've already talked about that. My notes are redundant. I'll take that out. Um, so treatments. Let's talk about treatments for PTSD. So let's talk about cognitive processing therapy first, since that's the one presented in This American Life. Developed by Patricia Rezik in the 1980s to reduce intrusive symptoms of PTSD and other trauma-related conditions. Again, it's evidence-based. So let's talk about evidence-based for a second here. Uh, I've talked about a lot. <laughs> and for those of you who listen to the podcast, uh, you've heard me rant about it before, but let me rant about this just one more time, which I'll probably do a thousand more times by the time I'm dead. Um, so in order for you to prove or demonstrate through uh, you know, clinical trials that a treatment is effective or not effective. One of the first steps is you have to manualize the treatment, meaning you have to standardize it and you have to put it in a manual. And that manual has to be given to the clinicians and the clinicians have to follow the manual. Let's pull away from 
psychotherapy treatments and let's go to medical treatment. So, because we follow the same model when we're trying to evaluate the evidence and the effectiveness of our treatments, we tend to, and increasingly so, use medical models for evaluating that, which has some wisdom to it, but uh, uh, it's, it's limited for sure. So, Let's say you have someone who has some kind of um, problem with their stomach and you develop this medication that you think works. Well, in order to demonstrate that it works is you have to have a way of measuring the condition. So let's say you ask the patient, you know, what's happening? Oh, my stomach hurts. And you're like, okay. Um, and then you maybe you take a, a sample, somehow a sample from their stomach and you're like, oh, okay, they have this, they have this you know, fungus or this virus or something. And you say, okay, well, I think this medication works. Okay, well, now you need to take two groups of people. One's a control group that you don't do anything to. And they have the problem with the stomach. And you take another group of uh, people who actually do have the problem. They do have the stomach problem. You give one, only one group the treatment. You only give one group the medication. And that, that, part, that group takes the medication. Then after the treatment, uh, but first off, you have to define the treatment, right? You have to say, okay, well... The treatment protocol is to take five pills over five days of this exact pill. And then at the end of that uh, treatment protocol, at the end of the five days or however long you say, you ask the two groups about their symptoms and you measure. And if the treatment group actually shows a reduction in symptoms, then you have demonstrated in a nutshell that this treatment protocol, this manualized treatment protocol, has is is been shown by evidence to reduce symptoms in this condition. Now, let's say someone comes along and says, well, yeah, you know, my way of treating these people is to give two of those pills, because I think the pills are okay, but, you know, I, I think two of the pills will work, but I also give them this other pill. And in my experience, that works as well. Well, you don't let them into the research uh, uh, protocol, the research study, because if you have one clinician, one physician doing a different therapy in there, then they are now, you, you've thrown off all the results because one person in there is doing something different. Or let's say half the people are, they're not giving five pills, they're giving three pills, or they're giving 10 pills. You have to manualize it because otherwise, how do you tell people afterwards what they're supposed to do, right? When you tell people afterwards, you're like, well, you know, give them, I don't know, we gave them somewhere between one and 10 pills. Well, that's not good enough. You have to have an exact amount. It needs to be five pills, right? Okay. So when it comes to psychotherapy treatment, we do the same thing, but it's harder in psychotherapy because as opposed to uh, physical treatments, which usually involved a which usually involve a very simple protocol, like take this pill once a day for five days. That's very very simple to manualize. In psychotherapy, we're talking about humans talking to humans. <laughs> okay, how do you manualize that? Do we do we lock down exactly what your office looks like? Do we lock down the gender of the therapist? Do we lock down the age of the therapist? Do we lock down uh, the accent of the therapist, the, the how warm the therapist is? Do we lock down um, the way they deliver the treatment? Uh, there's so many factors to consider that are hard to measure and hard to manualize. But 
we need to do something, right? Particularly to certain groups of people who hold money who require us to do such a thing, which isn't a bad idea. But what it ends up doing is it creates this uh, this way of talking about therapy that it's like, um, you know, you have to follow this manual. And that's just not how psychotherapy works. Psychotherapy needs to be flexible. There's too many factors. What you need to do is you need to give clinicians the ability to think and to to think to assess and to treat and to constantly check in on their own treatment pr- progress and adjust and consult and get it you know that's what good therapists do good therapists don't just apply a treatment model because a lot of clients are going to get lost um, in that situation. A lot of clients are going to be mistreated in that situation. So you have to adjust. And so that doesn't lend itself to this evidence-based treatment model, right? Okay, so with, C- with cognitive processing therapy, at some point, uh, Patricia Rezik and other people, they said, okay, we want to manualize this. And what they did is they reduced it to 10 sessions, probably because they come from the cognitive behavioral world, which prefers therapy to be brief. And also, another reason why you reduce it to 10 is it's a lot easier to research that way. Research is expensive. You have to pay all the people. You got to get all the offices. You know, It's expensive. And believe me, there is not a lot of money in psychological research. Not a lot of money. And so 10 sessions is much easier to research than 20. It's probably half as expensive to do. And therefore... Uh, it could make or break the difference between even being able to do the study or not because grants or, you know, other kinds of funding will just be like, look, this is how much you got. So so that's another reason why it has to be 10 sessions. And that's another reason why manualized treatments that take two years don't really show up in the research literature that often because you'd have to spend billions of dollars researching whether or not that was effective or not. Um, also, how do you manualize two years of sessions? You know, uh, it's too variable. Like there's too many weird things that could happen in those two years. Plus, another thing while I'm on this topic is when you're doing research like this, there's always people who drop out of the research study at some point. And 10 sessions, they're a lot less likely to back out because it's only 10 sessions. Whereas if you do two years, a lot of the research participants are going to halfway through, they're going to be like, eh, I think I'm done, or I move, or whatever. And that can uh, invalidate the um, results as well, because you don't have enough people who actually finished the treatment protocol. Anyway, so when we look at treatments for PTSD, it's the same thing. They need to be manualized. And they the other issue of manualization is... Uh, you need to have it lends itself to to uh, worksheets and to things that are very concrete in terms of uh, of treating. So when you manualize the ten sessions of of cognitive processing therapy, you say you do this session one, you give this assignment session two, you give this assignment session three. Whereas there's a lot of forms of therapy that also work, like dynamic therapy, humanistic therapy, that by their nature, cannot be done with homework worksheets and are found to be just as effective. But how do you put humanistic therapy in a manual? It's hard, you know? You can't have a worksheet for developing authenticity with your client. (laughs) 
you can't have a worksheet for uh, positive regard with your client. You know, giving your client positive regard uh, cannot be done in a worksheet. It just doesn't work that way. Plus, some therapists cannot be taught how to have positive regard for their clients. So how do you manualize that? How do you put that in a manual and give it to a clinician so that they can do it? You know, follow this manual and you will have positive regard for your client. That's just not possible. You can act like you have positive regard, but that doesn't help. You have to act, you have to, in your soul, in your heart, actually have positive regard. You can't just say, you can't just have active, ref, you know, reflecting, listening with your, with your client and say, oh, I have positive regard for you. That doesn't work. You have to, you have to be it. You have to be authentic. You have to be there. And so how do you manualize that? It's hard. And yet, researchers have looked into it and found that positive regard actually does help people, even though it is harder. But it's so much easier to have a manualized treatment that involves worksheets, which cognitive processing therapy, uh, dialectical behavior therapy, all the big, quote-unquote, evidence-based therapies, hmm, by coincidence, they all have a shit ton of homework. <laughs> I mean, that should red, that should raise a red flag, right? Uh CPT, DBT, uh, trauma-focused CBT, even to some extent EMDR, these, these kinds of therapies are homework therapies and very easy to manualize. Anyway, now, I'm not taking a crap on these forms of therapy. I love these kinds of therapy. I just think that the term evidence-based, one, is misleading because you have to understand how research works, particularly in psychology. Uh, two... You know, one of the things that I'll tell people is, you know, what are the evidence-based treatments for borderline? And they'll say, and I know I've talked about this in the podcast before, but I'll say, you know, what, what are the evidence-based treatments for borderline? And they'll say, oh, it's DBT. And I'll go, okay, true. What are the other evidence-based treatments for DBT? And they'll be like, uh, I don't know. I say, did you know that psychodynamic therapy is also evidence-based when it comes to borderline? And they're like, no, I didn't know that. So the marketing department of these CBT-based therapies are much better at, you know, making sure that everyone understands that they're evidence-based and by spreading lies and propaganda that they have the only evidence-based treatment for a particular condition. And that's a crime to me because that is making, you know, that'd be like a a particular pharmaceutical company like like Pfizer or something coming forward and somehow tricking the public into believing that only their pills help people when so many other pharmaceutical companies can also help people. That's a crime. And for people in my field to believe uh, that uh, only one out of 10 of the evidence-based treatments is evidence-based in my mind is a crime. Uh, because how many clients are being uh, misserved by a badly tailored uh, treatment protocol that's being shoved down their throat when a different form would have worked better? So just keep that in mind. So cognitive processing therapy is evidence-based. It works. It works for people uh, with other disorders as well. Uh, that are commonly comorbid with PTSD, personality disorders, dissociation, major depression, suicidality. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm using my own version of cognitive processing therapy with my own clients. Again, just to review, 
The therapy involves changing distorted interpretations about a traumatic event because the distorted interpretations cause a lot of ongoing symptoms of shame, fear, hyper, hypervigilance, low self-esteem, distrust, bad mood, hopelessness, and lack of reaching out to others. You identify their irrational thoughts and their avoidance behaviors, and you replace those irrational thoughts and the avoidance behaviors with, quote-unquote, rational thoughts and non-avoidance behaviors, whatever that means. Uh, and this was portrayed in the This American Life episode in which it was, okay, we got to change that irrational belief that you're to blame and that you could have stopped it if you dressed differently. And we have to take away your avoidance behavior of you not going out and talking to people. We have to actually get you out and start talking to people. Um, because, you know, when we are traumatized, we enter into this way of trying to protect ourselves that ends up causing a lot more problems. Okay, so that's uh, cognitive processing therapy in a nutshell. Now, from the, from the way it's described, it sounds pretty easy, but I, I'm here to tell you that uh, the kinds of activities that cognitive processing therapy does is actually pretty complicated, and as a therapist, uh, it would take you a long time to learn how to treat a lot of people with this. Um, like I said, I use all these things in my own version of trauma therapy. So everything that cognitive processing therapy does, I do. I just don't have the worksheets. Um, another form of therapy, and this is probably my main uh, form of trauma therapy that I've incorporated into my style, is prolonged exposure. This is another form of cognitive behavioral therapy. It was developed to treat PTSD. It's quote-unquote evidence-based. It's developed. It was developed by Edna Foa, and it's about a twelve. Uh, it's about twelve weekly sessions, and they're ninety-minute long sessions. They have to be longer sessions because of the exposure thing, which I'll get into in a second. Number one, you establish a a safe therapeutic relationship. Again, think about this is done in twelve sessions. Number two, you need to educate the client about how to lower their distress level, particularly using breathing techniques. Essentially, it's emotional regulation. Number three is you use imaginal exposure, and this is in session. So this is when the client actually describes in detail the traumatic event that they went through, and this is all done with the guidance of the therapist. They will, they will record it um, audio, and this is actually something that uh, I might actually start incorporating myself because I actually don't do this, but, uh, and, but I, think it's, I think it's brilliant. So... The way that you, you know, and I t I've talked about this before, but it bears repeating, I guess, in this context, is that when you suffer from PTSD, when you've been traumatized, you become scared of the story of what happened to you. you the story itself, just remembering what happened, actually will re-traumatize you. It'd be similar to, like, if if you were, you know, if you fell into a, you know, say you fell down in the woods and you landed on a pile of spiders, like there was under this log was this pile of spiders and it was this traumatic event for you. And you're freaking out, you're terrorized and you, you're running through the woods and there's spiders all over you, you know, and you're like, oh my God. And then, you know, you're, every once in a while you, you think about the spiders and it scares you. And then imagine if, um, someone just dumped spiders on you 
or someone took you in the woods and like threw you into a pile of spiders, like you would be terrorized again, right? You might even be more terrorized. Well, that's what it's like for many people with PTSD to remember the event that they went through. To think about the terror is to relive it and to be re-traumatized by it. So people will avoid thinking about it. But in order to heal from it, you have to think about it. So people will uh, develop all these elaborate ways of avoiding thinking about it. They'll drink a lot. They'll use drugs a lot. They won't talk about it. They, they'll avoid any feeling that reminds them of that. They will just lock themselves away in their, in their homes because when they leave the house, they get triggered more. So there's all these ways of trying to avoid even thinking about the memory of it. And this is what a lot of PTSD symptoms come from. And so through prolonged exposure, what you're doing is you're getting the person to habituate to the memory. You're getting them to become so used to the memory that it no longer causes any problems for them. But there's two things that have to happen. One is the exposure to the memory has to be tolerable, meaning that it can't create so much distress that it causes them to freak out. Um, I guess there's three components. Two, it has to actually produce some level of distress. Because like some memories of the trauma won't produce the distress you need. So it has to produce, on a scale from 1 to 10, the general rule, as I say, about a 4 or 5, maybe a 6, but try to keep it to 4 or 5. So they have to feel that level of distress. And then three, you have to prolong it. That's the prolonged exposure part. So you have to hold it. And by holding that level of distress and by, by, by continuing to think about that memory, your brain habituates to the memory. And if you do this enough, eventually you, the memory no longer bothers you. And like what Jamie Lowe talked about, you can talk about the memory and everything's fine. The analogy I give in class is how many of you, I, I asked the class, how many of you have a cat or a dog? And, you know, most of the class will raise their hand. And I say, uh, okay. Um, how many of you think that when people come over to your house, they smell your cat or your dog or your cat litter box or whatever, but you can't smell it? And everyone's like, oh, all of us. Okay. So that's what we call, um, you know, nose blindness, right? Well, that's habituation. The first time you smelled your cat, the first time you smelled your litter box, you smelled it. But over time, the brain learns, if I'm going to smell this all the time, it's going to distract me. So I'm just going to turn off this. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to notice this anymore. So the brain learns to habituate. The brain learns like another thing that we learn to habituate to is just wearing shoes. When we're infants and, we're, and people put shoes on us when we're young, we don't like it at first. Most kids hate wearing wearing restrictive clothes like that because it's not natural. It doesn't feel good. But over time, or they're either too young to protest, which is another thing, but over time you get used to it. You get used to the feeling of having shoes on your feet. And then by the time you're 25, it's no big deal at all. But if you took someone that had never worn shoes and they were 30 years old and you tried to put shoes on their feet, they it would really bother them. You know, put shoes on a dog or a cat. You'll see what, what it's like for people not to be habituated to something. Um, particularly the feet because you need to be able to feel the ground, you know. And so our body and our mind has this adaptation of adapting 
by habituating, by learning to ignore, by learning to, to have something be mundane. And so we learn over time by, by, by really sticking with the story of the narrative for, you know, 10 to 30 minutes and really holding that distress level at five, not going up to 10 because that's too much, but holding it at five, it's distressing. It doesn't feel good. You hold it there for long enough and eventually you can tell the story and you won't be distressed at all because your brain is used to it. And that's what imaginal exposure means. Imaginal meaning you imagine the trauma. And so that's, that's what I mainly do with my, with my treatment protocol. Now, what prolonged exposure does is they actually will record the client talking about the trauma. And in between sessions, the client is supposed to listen to those recordings. So this is additional exposure. Um, and the therapist will say, you need to sit down and listen to the whole thing. And make sure that you do your breathing techniques to, to keep your uh, distress from spiking too much. The other thing that prolonged exposure does is in vivo exposure. And this is meaning um, in real life exposure. So this is like outside of session and it's usually assigned with homework. So the therapist and the client work together to develop a plan for exposing the client outside of therapy to stimuli that will trigger their PTSD reaction while again utilizing their distress management and in prolonged exposure, it's mainly breathing techniques. Gradually getting more intense. So say someone was traumatized by a car accident. Well, one thing you do is in session, you expose them imaginally to the event by having them talk about being in the car accident and you pro you expose them to that story in session in a prolonged fashion uh, to get them to habituate to the memory and you actually will have them listen to it outside a session to get them to habituate to the memory. You also say, uh, let's develop a plan for you to actually be in cars on the highway um, th through gradual means. So the first thing I want you to do is just get in your car and sit there for half an hour. Just get in your car in your driveway for half an hour and, you know, do your breathing techniques until you're used to just sitting in your car. Okay, I can sit in my car. Everything's fine. At first, I wasn't fine because it reminded me of the trauma. Okay, so you sit in your car, just sit there in the driveway. The next day, get in your car, drive around the block uh, yeah, or drive on very safe, you know, country roads um, for for 30 minutes until you're habituated to that. Okay, so you do that. Then you drive on a busy street, and then eventually you're driving on the freeway, and uh, you've only gotten there because you've done gradual things up to that point. And you hold your distress level, but you prolong it, because when you prolong exposure to things that are noticeable to your psyche and your limbic system, your limbic system learns to eventually forget it. And that's why PTSD is so insidious is because in, in order to get better, you have to expose yourself to these events. But by just even approaching these events, people become distressed. And so prolonged exposure uh, through education and through support and through a plan of gradual, you know, starting easy and getting harder, the person is able to actually expose themselves to the memory so that, and the event so that they can actually recover and they will no longer have PTSD. 
So when we compare prolonged exposure to cognitive processing therapy, it's basically basically the same, except exposure is uh, more focused on habituation than changing meaning. And also exposure can work on other kinds of anxieties like phobias. Okay, so let's talk about trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. A lot of people, this is very popular, uh, popular type of therapy like DBT, TFCBT is what we call it. Developed in the 90s by Judith Cohen, Esther Deblinger, and Anthony Marino, Marinino, Manarino, Manarino. Um, it's another form of CBT like the others, and it is developed to, to treat PTSD. It's quote-unquote evidence-based, but it's particularly developed for kids and teens with, with PTSD. So they developed, the people who developed this were like, look, there's a lot of kids with PTSD, and we need a family kid-based version of this therapy. It's about 15 sessions, and it's for both the child and the parents. The therapy involves psychoeducation, as most uh, tra- trauma therapies do, but it also includes parenting skills, you know, because you want the parents to be able to help the kids with their trauma. You can't just treat a child in isolation. You have to treat the family. You want to help the kid with emotional regulation. You want to help the kid express emotions in a healthy manner. Uh, you also develop the client's trauma narrative. So this is um, similar to exposure, but it's actually kind of more akin to um, cognitive processing therapy in that the narrative is built, is developed in session, not necessarily for exposure purposes, but um, for meaning purposes, sort of both. But the way they often, anyway, I have a problem with TFCBT because a lot of the times the way that, at least the way that I've seen my super, so my supervisees will work at agencies that will do, that will use TFCBT, which is, it's a fine model. It's, it's great. But a lot of people walk away from the training with this idea of like, well, you got to get people to the exposure. You got to get people to the trauma narrative. Okay. So, so you have this kid who was sexually abused for five years by her mother. And, you know, well, evidence-based, you got to use trauma-focused CBT, right? Because that's the only thing that works. And that's what the trainer told us. Well, guess what? The trainer has a reason for telling you that because they get more money when you believe that they have the only way to help you. You know, when McDonald's says they have the best burger in town, do you believe it? I hope not. (laughs) I hope you understand that. These are marketers trying to sell you something because you have money that they want. Well, the people who develop these theories, you have money that they want. They don't develop these uh, treatment protocols because of the kindness of their heart. Uh, They might do it somewhat for that, but a big reason why they do it is for money and for power and for clout. Um, Like I have been tempted to, to develop my own theory and my own version of therapy. But the only reason why I would do it is because I would want to be famous for a particular form of therapy. And I feel like we have enough forms of therapy out there that I don't need to add another one to it. (laughs) So a lot of people, like the people who did trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, why didn't they just say, look, we have another version of prolonged exposure and we're just going to call it like uh, it's just a subchapter of prolonged exposure. Why did they have to call it this whole other thing, right? 
Same with cognitive processing therapy. Why don't these people come forward and say, we have another version of TFCBT or we have another, another version of CBT or something and we're not going to market it. We're just going to throw it out there. Anyway, my point is, is like you just have to be careful with that. So I will get um, interns at agencies that I'm supervising at my university and they're, they're being trained at their agency to use TFCBT with the kids. And the impression that they get from the trainers and from their supervisors is that you have to get the kids to get to the trauma narrative. That's the main goal. And so, so, you know, they'll sit down with the kid. So you have a girl, she's sexually abused from the age of five to 10 by her mother, sexually abused, just horrifically traumatic for her. Emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. And the mother goes to prison and the kid now is in foster care and she goes to a therapist and uh, the agency is like, oh, okay, evidence-based therapy, TFCBT. And you sit down with the kid and you start, you, first off, you're just trying to get to know the kid and you start playing games with the kid, the 10-year-old girl. You start playing Legos or drawing or whatever. And let's say that she doesn't really want to be in therapy. She's like, yeah, I don't know really, I don't really know why I'm here. I wish I could just be home at home watching Hannah Montana or whatever, whatever kids wear, watch these days. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, I'll play along. And then the therapist, it, you know, by session four or five or six or something, it's starting to go, okay, well now it's time for us to develop a trauma narrative because there's these homework assignments. So I want you to tell me uh, what happened? I want you to write. I want you to write a narrative of what happened, or you know, I want you to write it down, or um, you can tell me what happened, and I'll write it down. Now, in TFCBT, because again, it's fifteen sessions. You got to get to that trauma narrative fast, because it takes a while to develop it, and you have to expose them to it for a while. So, you got to get to it pretty quick. Uh, now. People out there listening, some of you actually use TFCBT and you use it in a flexible manner and I commend you. And if you do that, then you're doing fantastic work. But again, if you're following the manual and you're following evidence-based treatment, then it's 15 sessions. That's just how it is. You can't give 10 pills to the guy with the stomach problem. You got to give five. You can't give two. You can't give two plus a different You got to give five. That's evidence-based. Otherwise, you're just free freewheeling it like you're 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 and some people say you're doing unethical treatment because you're not following the protocol which is ignorant of what psychotherapy really is but anyway so i would have these supervisees who would be like pushing the girl to be doing um the trauma narrative on session six seven eight and they're having trouble and they would come to me and say, you know, I'm really having trouble trying to get this kid to um, write down their trauma narrative. And I'd be like, well, tell me the situation. And they'd tell me the situation. And I'm like, why the fuck are you trying to get them to do the trauma narrative in session seven? Do you understand what PTSD is? Do you understand what complex PTSD is? Do you understand how – now, I don't say this to them, of course. This is what I'm thinking in my head. What I'm really thinking, what I really want to yell at is the trainer and the supervisor for uh, – telling this person to basically harm their client. This is harmful to, to clients. And it, this is proven. When you push a client too fast, you will re-traumatize them. You will make their symptoms worse. And for you clinicians out there, uh, the, well, you, might be, you might be saying, well, how do I know? 
How do I know? Well, listen to my other episodes on trauma therapy. Maybe I'll get into that later. But um, one, the the very short answer is you won't know until you have, until you've worked with, you know, two dozen clients with various different PTSD presentations and actually cured them of it. Then you'll know. (laughs) Um, And had a mentor and a supervisor actually walks you through that experience and helps you understand what you're looking at. Then you'll have the answer to your question. I cannot describe to you. I can give you kind of a a skeleton of an explanation, which I'll do in a bit anyway. So with TFCBT, a lot of times it gets bastardized or gets utilized in this manualized form in 15 sessions. And we have people pushing kids to talk about the trauma narrative way before they're ready to do it. And they're re-traumatizing the kids or they're just being kind of bullying to the kids. You know, the kids, the kids like, I don't want to talk about it. And the, and the therapist is like, well, you know, you, you need to be doing that. Um, and then the, the, you know, if you're, if you're going to get better, you got to be doing this, that kind of thing. And then the kid feels pressured and, you know, that's never a good idea. And you're basically re-traumatizing the kid. But if you use trauma-focused CBT, if you use prolonged, you know, prolonged exposure, same thing. It's supposed to be 12 sessions. Uh, cognitive processing therapy is supposed to be 10 to 12 sessions. It can, you cannot do trauma therapy in that rigid way. Some people, some people don't need that many. I, like I said, I treated some people in five sessions. I, why would I string it out to 15 when I can do it in five? You have to assess and react and tailor is the point. Anyway, so TFCBT. Uh, now, the, really the only difference between trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy and, and the ones I've already discussed is that it, it involves kids. It, it has it, the assignments are more geared to, towards kids, and it also involves assignments for the parents and parenting skills for the parents involves the family. Um, it, the principles are the same with prolonged exposure, essentially, and with cognitive processing therapy. You could almost consider it sort of a combination of the two. All right, now let's talk about EMDR, eye movement desensitization and pre- reprocessing therapy, developed by psychologist Francine Shapiro in the 1980s to, to treat PTSD and is, quote, evidence-based. It's anywhere between three sessions and 15 sessions. And I kind of like this. It's like, look, we'll assess as we go three to 15 sessions. And here are the different steps. First, uh, the therapist assesses the client history. Then the therapist assesses how ready the client is for therapy. That's important, right? So some good EMDR therapist will be like, I don't think you're ready for this. I think you need to go back to your personal therapy and actually... Uh, resolve some of the things you're going through, work on how to access your emotions, that kind of thing. So the therapist in EMDR actually says, actually there's this way of determining whether or not the person is actually ready for it. Because once you go into it, it's it's you know it can be intense, just like all the other exposure therapies, because it's basically a form of exposure therapy. The therapist explains how the therapy works. They develop a treatment plan. They develop a good relationship. The therapist helps the client develop skills to reduce the stress Um, associated with recalling the trauma, so uh, emotional regulation, essentially. The client describes the trauma while feeling the feelings, emotions, bodily sensations. Um, So this is the exposure part, and this is, you know, several sessions in. The client talks about their negative automatic thoughts about the memory, and they talk about other interpretations. And this is similar to what we were talking about with cognitive processing therapy, which is things like, I deserved it, it was my fault. Um, the, the, the client focuses on these memories and the associated feelings. So I remember being assaulted on the street and it, it was my fault. And then 
the therapist does some sort of bilateral stimulation, uh, having the client move their eyes back and forth or physical stimulation between their hands. Pretty fast movement. It's like one rotation per second. So it's like left, right, left, right. You know, so look left, look right, look left, look right. And that you're supposed to focus on the memory and the associated feelings like, okay, I remember his hand, you know, grabbing my genitals. I remember the way he smelled. And my conclusion was it was my fault. And you, you really focus on that and you, you look back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And after a while, you keep doing that over and over and over again. And after a while, the therapist asked the client um, <clears throat> what they are thinking about now and how they're feeling. And then the client will say, well, hmm, you know, upon focusing on that thing, his hand on my pants, the way he smelled and the fact that I feel like it's my fault, I'm kind of now feeling like he uh, he was just kind of a dirtbag and, I don't know, in a weird way, I kind of feel sorry for him. Okay, so let's focus on that. Really focus on that. He's a dirtbag and you feel sorry for him. Now move your eyes back and forth. Da, da, da. You just keep doing that. And you, you just keep thinking about uh, what associations sort of pop into your head, the feelings you have, the emotions you have, and you do this bilateral stimulation. Um, then you start thinking about the trauma while thinking about a positive cognition. So you're trying to replace the negative thoughts and feelings with positive thoughts, thoughts and feelings. It's kind of complicated, but that's it in a nut, nutshell. Sort of, sort of meaning making, and you do this for a while. You journal between the sessions about you know the treatment. And it ends when the memories no longer cause the stress. So EMDR, it, when I describe it that way, you might say to yourself, well, geez, that sounds a lot like imaginal exposure in the prolonged exposure model. And you would be right. Um, it, people often really focus on the eye movement part of EMDR. But the eye movement part is a small part of EMDR. A big part of EMDR is giving clients the power to choose the therapy, educating them about trauma, giving them emotional regulation skills. That's a lot of people don't have that. Exposing them to the memories and the thoughts and the feelings, um, pro, you know, prolonging their exposure to that, having them talk about the conclusions that they got from it, similar to prolonged exposure and cognitive uh, processing therapy. Uh, you know, re-meaning, meaning changing the meaning of the event so that it, it's not so, you know, detrimental to the ego. Um, but in the middle of all that, you do this eye movement thing. So now some people will say, and proponents of EMDR will say that the eye movement definitely helps. Other people will say the eye movement has nothing to do with the treatment pro protocol. Uh, it's hard to say. All I know is that I've treated people without using the eye movement thing and it, and it works just fine. Uh, but you'll hear clients talk about how EMDR saved their life. And, and I don't doubt that it did. So there you go. Um, okay. So in my notes, I did not include my new model. But, so I'm going to be typing while I do it because <laughs> I lectured about this the other night. Okay, so, that, so step one in my new model which is a variation on the one I've always talked about, is um, education and consent. So this is similar to the other models in that you have to really educate the client on what trauma therapy involves, meaning they have to say, look, you're going to have, this is going to be distressing to you. Um, 
we're going to keep it at a tolerable level. Uh, you know, we're going to try to keep it to a four or a five out of 10, but it's not going to be a walk in the park. In order for you to get better, it, you know, it's got to be distressing to some extent. We're not going to let you, we're going to really try to avoid you going to a seven, eight, nine, because then we're actually harming you. So we're going to try to keep it to a four and a five, but no pain, no gain. And some people aren't ready for that. And so you have to get their consent. You have to be like, are, are you sure you want to do that? And so I, I have, with some clients, that will take three minutes, that, that step, education and consent, three minutes. Some clients, no joke, three years, where we are talking about all the other issues in their life, their current life and their past life, because, you know, it's not like trauma was the tra- traumatic events were the only bad things they've been through. You know, there's other bad things they've been through. And there's all these other things they want to talk about. And then three years into it, they're like, okay, I think I'm ready to do trauma treatment. So imagine if I used a 10-session protocol with that. <laughs> you know? Okay. Or even if I proposed somehow that, like, look, we need to get moving on this. Okay. So step two is emotional awareness. Um so this is the ability to identify your emotions. And like I said, for some people, they come into session like Jamie Lowe, knowing their emotions pretty well. Other people, like I said, it can take years. Um, I, I've, I've treated clients, no joke, for, you know, five plus years, and they barely understand their emotions. They're, you can be traumatized in such a way, like I said earlier, to not know your emotions at all. Okay, number three is emotional regulation. So I I separate emotional awareness from emotional regulation because I want to highlight the fact that you can't regulate what you don't know. So you have to know through awareness and then two, then you begin regulation. And so when I know someone's at the end of this step, and this is always how I talk about it, it's like at, at, when I, at the end of step three, what I see in a client and I never know when it's going to happen. It could happen by session three. It could happen by session, you know, a hundred, a thousand and three. The client will come into my office and they will say, you know, without much prompting, they'll be like, okay, Monday I was a three distress. And that, but Tuesday I was a seven. And I know I was a seven because my heart was racing. My hands were sweaty and my, uh, I felt the tension in my chest and I utilized five of my 15 available emotional regulation skills and three of them worked to reduce my number from a seven down to a two. And those things were deep breathing, uh, walking outside and telling myself everything's going to be okay. And that's what worked to get me down to a two. So what do we see in this present, in this account from this client? We see that they understand their distress level. They can rate it. Um, but they also do it is the thing. You know, it's it's one thing to be able, you know, like one of the things that people, some of my clients will say is about like, you know, let's sit down on my couch and I'll be like, okay, um, tell me about as, you know, as I'm going through trauma treatment, I'll be like, okay, so tell me about your, your distress level this week. And they'll be like, oh, well, I guess on Thursday, yeah, I was, I was probably like a seven. Now, although that's fine and we're, we're going down the road. They didn't know they were a seven at the time. They're looking back and they're saying, I was a seven. And that's a great step to go down, but they're, they're not as far down the step as what I need them to be. I need them to know in the moment 
I need them to know relatively quickly without my prompting, oh, I'm a seven. The other thing I need, the other marker we have here in this presentation of the person who sat down and they said the breathing and all that stuff is not only do they, did they monitor their distress in the moment and know their distress, but they actually had effective ways of reducing their distress. So again, a lot of people will come into therapy and they'll be like, um, oh yeah, I was a seven and I knew it at the time. And I'll be like, okay, well, what did you do to reduce your seven uh, to a lower number? And they'll be like, oh, I don't know. I, I, prob- I guess I could have done my deep breathing or I, I guess I could have um, you know, listened to some music or something. Um, that that might have helped. Okay, so we're, it's great. We're moving down the road, but that isn't good enough. What I need someone to do to demonstrate to me that they will actually enact not only just things that might help, but things that actually do help. Now, for some people, this can take a long time. Because for some people, that it might be really weird for them to actually do things to help themselves in the moment because they're used to just being out of control and helpless. And it's hard to reduce your distress in the moment. You know, there there's a lot of different ways to do it. And you have to believe, you know, you have to believe that it's going to work on some level. Otherwise, you're not, it's not going to work. And so the ability to emotionally regulate, um, especially with intense feelings like distress with PTSD can be really hard. And so, so that's what I'm looking for at the, when's, you know, when I will know step three is over when someone sits down on the couch and says on Thursday, I was a seven. I knew it because of this. And I did these three things and it worked. And they do that over and over again. It, it wouldn't just be like one session where they show me. It was like be like over a number of sessions, they're proving to me that they actually have a, have a really effective way of regulating their emotions. Now, for a lot of people, that's all they need in terms of trauma therapy. Right there, they're done with trauma therapy because by doing that, they have um, effectively uh, begun the treatment process of PTSD for themselves. But anyway, step four is exposure. So this is like with prolonged exposure, it's basically that model. So this is when, now, prolonged exposure to the model involves emotional awareness and regulation, but I feel like they don't emphasize it enough. You know, to say that prolonged exposure takes 12 sessions is ignorant of the fact that some people can take years to, to be able to regulate their emotions. So, um, so this is where, step four for me is exposure, and so this is where we do that exposure stuff, where I would have them talk about what happened to them for a prolonged time in session. Um, I might start adding the recording bits and having them listen to it in between sessions. And we keep them to a five or a four, and we prolong that exposure for a long period of time until the memory no longer causes distress at all. And we rinse and repeat until all the stories and all the memories related to the trauma no longer cause any distress. And that's when we know we're done with the fifth, the fourth um, step. And here's the fifth step that I recently added is, um, I'm just going to call it meaning making, which is the, and you can do this during um, four, I guess you could do it during any of the steps. So maybe I should add that can be done throughout as well, is to change the meaning. And that's what J.B. Lowe did with Dr. Kaysen in which, you know, the meaning she derived from the trauma was that she was to blame and she, she dressed badly and she was too nice to people and she needs to be distrustful of others. 
And the new meaning is that she can trust other people for the most part. She does have power, and she is an adult now. She does know how to protect herself, and that it it was not her fault at all, and the way she dressed had nothing to do with it. So that's the meaning-making part. Okay, so that's my model. Uh, Again, in a nutshell, if you want to hear more about that, then you got to listen to my deep dive on trauma therapy. I did it a few years ago. Um, All right. So in conclusion, listen to This American Life, 10 sessions. Um, And let me know what you think. Let me know what you think of this episode. Uh, Yeah, I'm just looking at my notes to see if... (laughs) um, if you're a client out there and you're th- you're thinking about getting yeah I've had people email me and again I I never know the actual story cuz I'm not there but I've had people email me telling me that their therapist doesn't know how to treat trauma and the therapist will just start diving into it like well tell me what happened and the client will comply because they think they're in good hands and then the client will just start talking about it I had this one person email me and uh, he or she was like, after sessions, I go to my car and I just have to sit there for like an hour while I'm shaking. And I, I don't know, I, my therapist says that um, I need to be doing what I'm doing in session, but therapy really feels bad to me. And it takes me like days to recover from these sessions. And then, you know, I might, I would ask them, well, is your therapist helping you with that at all? Are they, um, are they talking about the fact that maybe you're going too fast in therapy? And the person emailed me, but no, my, my therapist seems to believe that what they're doing is right. And this is evidence that a therapist doesn't know what they're doing, which again is not uncommon. So if you're being treated like that, uh, Make sure you either tell your th- please tell your therapist one that's a, a given um, one to say I want to speak up for myself I'm not quite sure if what is happening is good for me and I need you to prove to me that it is and you know when I I have clients do that to me all the time all the time with PTSD treatment they you know I have clients come to me and they'll just be like so I'm in a lot of distress here are you sure this is helping. And the thing is, I can answer that question because I know the answer to that question. If your therapist can't really answer that question sufficiently, then I don't know if you're in the right spot. And make sure you find a trauma specialist, someone who really knows what they're doing. If you're wondering how to test that, ask them over the phone, tell me how you treat trauma. If they have sort of a hem and a haw answer, then avoid. But if they have a if they say, Oh, well, I use you know, prolonged exposure, or I use EMDR, or I use, um, you know, cognitive processing therapy. The second question you should ask is, how do you know if someone's going too fast or too slow? And do you necessarily follow the exact manual? That'd be, you got to ask that question. So you're at a good start if they're using an actual evidence-based model. But the other thing is you got to say, like, um, how do you know if you're going too fast or too slow? They should have a very good answer to that. If they're like, uh, well, I don't know. Or they're like, well, you know, the it research shows that it works at 12 sessions. And if that's all they have to say, then avoid. But if they say something like, well, it, uh, we'll have time to assess that. And we'll make sure that we go at the pace that's best for you. And maybe another question you could ask is, so 
um, what if it takes me, you know, six to 12 months to feel comfortable going through this model? How does that feel? And if the therapist is like, yeah, that's fine. There's no problem with that. Then you're, then you're probably in good hands. Um, so I'll tell you a story about someone that I treated successfully with PTSD. Um, and I'm, I, you know, I'm going to change the details of the story. And I'm trying to, I, I, I'm pretty sure I told the story in a variation before. So I never remember the way I changed it in the past to mask the person's identity. But, um, how should I change this? Okay. So a wife comes to me and she says that, um, actually, no, I'll, t- I'll tell you, I'll tell you a detail that was actually true was it was a couple. So the couple comes to me and at some point, uh, you know, to work on their, their conflict between the two of them. At some point, the wife tells me that, uh, she indicates to me that she has some trauma issues. And so I start to assess her right there in the couple session and I determine, oh, you have PTSD. And she's like, oh, I do. And I'm like, yep, you, you have the symptoms of you, you qualify for the diagnosis of PTSD. And so in the couple session, I laid it out to her. I said, I can treat you for the PTSD. Um, and this is what it's going to look like. And how do you feel about that? And I think over, I don't know, two or three sessions, the wife eventually came in and said, yep, I, I'm ready. I, I want to do it. Now, a lot of people will be like, oh, okay, I got to refer. But I didn't. I just kept them in couples therapy. You can do trauma therapy in in the couple um, sessions. You can also meet individually with people in couples and treat them too uh, within reason. But anyway, so I did a combination of both. I treated them both as a couple, and I met with them individually as well. Um. And I worked on her trauma. And her trauma was that she was, I'm always trying to figure out how to alter the story here. Um, And I know I've talked about this before, so I don't know exactly how I did it in the past. But um, I'm going to say that she was traumatized by... um, Oh, okay. I got to go in. Okay. So she was um, on his computer and there was this folder that had these old files in it. And so she opens the folder on his computer and it was all innocent. You know, she uses his computer sometimes and there's this video file and she clicks on it and the video file pops up and the video is of her husband having sex with another woman. And at first she's like, oh, it's two people having sex. It's porn. And then all of a sudden, boom, it occurs to her. This is my husband having sex with someone. And she's stunned. She's, you know, to rocked to her core. She's watching her husband have sex with someone else on the computer screen. Her body is thrown into a panic. And she slowly starts to figure out this is either someone he had sex with recently, or maybe it was someone he had sex with before I met him. I don't know. All I know is I can't believe he has this video. Why does he have this video? Is he having an affair on me? Um, And she can't get this vision out of her head of him having sex with this other woman. I mean, she saw it in all of its, you know, glory for a number of minutes. Her heart is racing. 
She closes the computer. Her whole world is thrown upside down. She's worried about the kids. Is my husband a, a some sort of sexual predator? And she doesn't know what to do. So she just she just walks outside. She's wandering the streets. And she calls her best friend. And she's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And her best friend comes and picks her up. Okay. So now this isn't exposure to, uh, you know, to war trauma or she wasn't sexually abused herself. But this event caused so much terror in her that it produced trauma symptoms um, that were PTSD in nature. And uh, f- for years later, she had these symptoms. And so symptoms like uh, bad mood, hypervigilance, triggered, uh, you know, whenever she saw him on his computer, she would be triggered and she would go, she'd get thrown into a distress cycle. And so I, uh, you know, so she, I explained my model of treating trauma and eventually she consented. And so we worked on emotional awareness. Right away, I realized she was pretty much aware of her emotions. She was very good at that, mostly because she was raised pretty well, I mean, in a nutshell. Then we went on to step three, which is emotional regulation. And we worked on, that probably took a couple sessions of like, how do you effectively lower your distress level? And again, because she was raised relatively well and the trauma was relatively simple, uh, she had an innate ability or a very quickly developed ability to regulate her distress. Step four, exposure. So I start, okay, we're at the exposure level now, exposure stage. I want you to tell me exactly what happened, detail by detail. And she tells me the story. And as, I'm, as she's telling me the story, I'm writing everything down. So I'm, write, I'm the one writing the narrative. And we talk about it for 30 to 40 minutes. And I ask her, are you distressed? She says, yes. What number? Well, I'm a five. Okay, continue. And I might stop her 10 minutes and how are you feeling right now? Oh, I'm a seven. Okay, you're a seven. You're too high. Let's u- use your emotional regulation. Let's get it back down. Let's pause on the story. So she would do that. What number are you now? I'm a four. Okay, continue telling the story. We do this over and over and over again for maybe three sessions. Each time she tells me a story, there's more details. And each time she tells me the story, we keep her at a five. Um, then by session five, um, actually, I think it was like session four or something. I ask her to tell me the story and uh, she tells the story and I say, where is your distress? And she's like, uh, I don't know, one or two. So, Originally, the story was very distressing. This time, the story has no distress at all. So she's been she's habituated to the story. And we did another session, session five, to just kind of make sure that the symptoms had gone away. I gave her the um, uh, what is it called? The trauma inventory two, I think, or TSI trauma symptom inventory two. I think it's um, the main trauma symptom inventory that you give to clients to measure the level of their PTSD. And I found that. And I gave it to her at the beginning, gave it to her at the end. And at the beginning, she was, you know, mild to moderate PTSD. And at the end, zero PTSD. Five sessions. That's all it took. Huge success. She had been suffering for years. Again, 
if you are out there suffering from any kind of trauma-related condition, particularly if it's really kind of simple, it doesn't take long to cure yourself of that uh, with proper treatment. So that's what I did to myself is I exposed myself to medical treatments, both imaginal and in vivo, and habituated my body to those situations with the help of Valium during one particular moment, which I talked about in another episode. But um, basically, I taught my body that medical procedures are fine, even though my cognitive mind, my prefrontal cortex, had always known it was fine. Um, so, yeah. I could give you other examples of success stories that took a lot longer, but it would take a long time, and I feel like I should just wrap up this episode. So let me know what you think. Again, we got cognitive processing therapy. We got exposure therapy. We got trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. We have eye movement desensitization re- and reprocessing therapy. And we have uh, you know, integrative uh, models that like the one I use. I use my own integrative model of all the evidence-based treatments for trauma therapy and have found tremendous success with it. And I wish someone would have taught me this early in my career because I could have helped so many more people. Um, you know, one woman I'll never forget, I, I have um, a keepsake of hers on my wall. She gave me this gift of, um, again, I always tell this story, but uh, I used to live at this, I have always had a home office and I had this big maple tree, this big Japanese maple tree in the front of my yard. And she would come up the stairs to come to my house and she collected a bunch of these leaves and pressed them into a, um, a, a frame and gave it to me. And I thought it was really special. And, and at the time I didn't realize how meaningful it would be to me. And I treated her for a number of years and helped her a lot, but we never went into her trauma one cause she never told me. Um, so one session, never forget, we'd been meeting each other, you know, every week for a few years doing and she, we had a great relationship and one day she says okay you know what i think i'm ready to finally tell someone what happened to me and i'm like in my head i'm like oh my god the golden moment of therapy where someone finally feels safe enough to tell me that they were abused in some horrific way and i'm going to be the first person they're ever going to tell you feel very special you want to be there for that person and I'm like, tell me, you know, go ahead, tell me whichever, whatever you want to tell me. And she's like, okay, it's really hard for me to tell you this. And I said, you're in a safe space, you know, tell me what you want. And then she proceeds to tell me that, you know, she had been sexually abused. And and I, I felt like we were doing good therapy. I was like, wow, we've really reached a major milestone here. What a breakthrough. She left. And she never came back. And I was so confused. And I thought, what happened? We had such a great relationship. She gave me this thing with the maple leaves. We reached this, the pinnacle of our therapy. I even asked her, like, how do you feel about telling me? She said she felt fine. And she left and she never came back. Looking back, I'm 99% sure that because I didn't know any better, I let her tell me her story before we did uh, the, you know, the precursors to exposure. I basically did exposure with her without all the other steps that you need to do prior to exposure. 
um, if I could go back in time, I would have said to her, okay, it sounds like you're about to tell me something very traumatic for you. And I'm going to slow you down. I want to hear this story. But we're going to have to take our time. Because if we go too fast, it could re-traumatize you. So let's take, let's, let's, let's not talk about it today. Let's definitely talk about it in the future. But let's slow down and let's take some precautions before you tell me the story to make sure that you don't hurt yourself. If I had done that, I might have been able to help her. But because I didn't know what I didn't know, and I, and I thought that therapy was about listening, because it is, and I didn't understand trauma very well, I just, I just said, go ahead and tell me your story. And she did, and she was re-traumatized by that moment, and she never came back to therapy. That happens all the time. And it's still happening today. And I really hope that you therapists out there can um, be different. You know, when I talk with my supervisees, I, I tell them all this stuff. You know, I, I drill this into their heads. But I feel like it doesn't really get through with some of them. You know, they'll be like, well, you know, in their head they're thinking, well, you know, Kirk sounds smart, but I don't know. And then they talk to their clients and their client is, you know, the client wants to tell them a story. They're like, oh, yeah. I have this thing that happened to me and the client just starts telling a story and the therapist, my supervisee just listens without stopping them and saying, look, we have to make sure that it's safe for you to tell me this story. They won't do that. And then they experience firsthand what can happen to someone. Let me give you another example. Again, I've probably told this story before too. At some point, I just need to know that, acknowledge that I'm probably never going to say like a unique story. <laughs> There's every story I've told, I've probably told a billion times. Um, particularly if you're a listener out there um, who is one of my supervisees, you, then you've really heard all the stories a billion times. But anyway, so I had a client once and I was at the cusp of my understanding of PTSD at this point. I didn't know it well enough. And she came in, she, she had been sexually abused by a family member for, you know, 10 years or something, maybe longer. And the therapy was going great. And she had complex PTSD and she was really working out her transference with me into a, you know, a, 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 I was using a corrective experience with her to prove that I could be trusted, that I could give her the nurturing she deserved. And she comes into session one day and she's, she's like, you know, I was journaling about uh, my past and I was journaling about my therapy and I, I just, I just want to share it with you. And again, I thought, wow, what a special moment. My client is taking therapy seriously by journaling in between the sessions. You know, I didn't assign them to do that. Uh, my client trusts me enough to share this with me. I mean, what a special moment. And then she starts to she starts to read what she had written and about halfway through, I notice that her body is becoming extremely agitated. Her voice is getting more intense. Um, I can see her beginning to sweat, you know, and her hands are shaking. And it happened so fast, and I didn't know what to do in the moment. But what I didn't realize what was happening, because in my head I'm like, well, she wrote it down earlier. But what I didn't realize, what I know now, is that for some, for many people, writing something down is less intense than reading it out loud to someone else. When you read it out loud to someone else, that's much more intense than writing it down. Think about like you're writing something in your journal versus you're reading your journal to your therapist. 
You know, reading your journal to your therapist makes it much more real. And so for her in that moment, she became massively triggered by the intensity of that behavior. And she spiked in her distress to a 10 and re-traumatized herself. Now, one could say that's not my fault, but knowing what I know now, I, I would have stopped her. I would have said, well, hold on. Before you read me that, I want you to get grounded and I want you to make sure that it's safe to actually say this out loud because it could get kind of intense. So let's let's take it easy. So just read me a little bit of it. And then they read a little bit of it. Okay, where's your distress level? Well, I'll tell you the truth. I'm kind of a six. Okay, so let's not read the rest of it today. Let's read the rest of it another day. Tell me more. How you feeling? You know what? It, let's get your let's get your distress level down a little bit. Um, you know what sort of thoughts are coming to your mind as as you think about that beginning sentence. You know, it's complicated. But anyway, I hope you get my point. That trauma is complicated. There are so many different presentations. I hope the few clients I've told you about uh, illuminate that fact. You can have a client that can be have it be cured in five sessions, and it could be a simple trauma. You can have another client who it takes five plus years just for them to understand their emotions because the trauma eliminated their connection to their own emotional systems. Those are very – and then we haven't even talked about dissociation. So anyway – All right. Well, that does it for that episode. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really, really do.